today on Edge Effects. I think a lot actually about what the 1880s looked like, particularly in northwestern Alaska. To me, the climate question in the Bering Strait is both a continuation and an acceleration of the, the kind of historical events that I talk about. Environmental scientist Christian Andreessen speaks with environmental historian Bathsheba de Meux about her new book, Floating Coast, An Environmental History of the Bering Strait. Because they've both spent time in that region, their conversation goes to unexpected places and gets to the core of the challenges facing the communities living along the melting, eroding, and floating coasts of the Arctic. So we, before we start, I, I just wanted to say a few words of the Bering Strait just to introduce a listener about this. The Bering Strait is essentially a really narrow uh, gap where the North Pacific meets the Arctic Ocean. And what fascinates me that it's essentially is a sunken bridge where Asia was connected at some point to the Americas. And before we dive into the nuts and bolts of your new book, The Floating Coast, I would like to ask you about how your experiences in the Arctic and Taiga influenced you to write the environmental history of the Bering Strait. Yeah, thank you. And that's a good question. In some ways, that's where I start the book. And this project very much came out of a period of time I spent in the, the very eastern edge of Beringia, or the kind of Bering Strait region, when I was a teenager. I moved there when I was 18. And my primary job was to train a sled dog team for a Gwich'in family in a little village called Old Crow that's about 80 miles north of the Arctic Circle and about 100 miles south of the Beaufort Sea in the middle of the Yukon Territory. And I came there and I didn't know anything about anything, really, in retrospect. And I certainly didn't know anything about the Arctic. I was a farm kid from Iowa. And very quickly came to realize the degree to which the environment around me and the choices of people, but also non-human beings, were really critical to my daily life. And sometimes to my survival, initially often because I didn't know what I was doing, but then because my sort of primary job there was to train sled dogs. I spent a lot of time working really closely with animals out in the bush where our lives often intersected with those of other animal populations. And that experience, although I didn't realize it at the time, really colored the way in which I ended up approaching writing history and the kind of questions that really drove me when I ended up in the archives, you know, 15 years later when I was in grad school. Yeah, it's, it's, it's great. Any particular experience that really, you know, stuck with you for writing the story? Yeah, I think a moment that I, I kept coming back to, and I allude to it a little bit, in I think, in the introduction and the, the conclusion of the book, is this moment when I was with the sled dog team that I was training, and I was training them for long distance races for the Yukon Quest. So by the middle of the winter, I was taking them out on runs that were you know, 75 miles. I'd go out in one direction, and then I'd turn around and come back. And I didn't have a radio. I didn't, you know, if, if things went pear-shaped, I was pretty much responsible for how things fell out. And so we got to this a kind of slew off the edge of the Porcupine River, which is what I was running up. And we've come around a corner and there's a moose standing in the middle of the trail. And as somebody who's yourself spent a lot of time in the Arctic, you probably know that moose are actually one of the scarier beasties to run into out there that, you know, the wolves get all the attention, but really the moose are pretty formidable. And they're particularly formidable when you have a dog team because they tend to interpret dogs as a wolf pack. And so they sort of have two primary behaviors when they see wolves. One is to run away and the other is to charge them because moose are so large, they can trample wolves and do enough damage that they can disperse a pack before they're killed. And this moose, you know, she sees my dogs, you know, 
chasing at her and I don't have a lot of control over them at that point because they think this is the most fun thing that's happened to them all day. And she starts charging toward the, the dog team and I was just along for the ride. And at the very last minute, she turned kind of off the trail and headed into the snow and decided not to engage with my dogs. And and that moment, I it was I remember, you know, on this slough 70 miles north of this village, thinking the reason that I'm going to make it home tonight is because of what that moose chose to do. It has really nothing to do with me because I wasn't in control of any of the elements here. And I think that that, that sense of other beings making decisions and the, the kind of environment itself putting constraints and particular kinds of situations in your way is something that has stuck with me ever since. Yeah. Along those lines, you know, that relationship between humans and the environment, why, why is so important and unique in the Beringia region? I don't think it's more important than it is elsewhere in the world. I think the degrees to which people are intertwined with the natural environment is more stark in the Arctic simply because there are fewer people and the power of the elements themselves tend to be much more present in everyday life. I think that if you're paying attention, you can see all sorts of those signs in temperate, and I don't know the tropics, but probably the tropics as well. But the ways in which productivity works in Beringia, the ways in which human life is under stress because of the cold and because of the lack of light in the winter, I think it, it makes those interdependencies much clearer in everyday life. Yeah, I completely agree. I think this book is a fascinating story and narrates fairly well the ecological, cultural, and political evolution and transformations of the Arctic region. This is an area that is very similar in terms of the environment and, the, and resources and basically gets split in half between two modern ideologies, Russia and the U.S., between communists and capitalism. And this book does an excellent job portraying that. And the book narrates how major ecological changes in the Beringia region initiated in, in mid-1800s, and particularly how whaling and the purchase of Alaska by the U.S. from Russia greatly influenced both cultural and environmental change in Beringia. Could you add on that? Yeah, so when I started this project, I, I didn't think that I was going to write about whaling at all. It wasn't really on my agenda. I hadn't spent any time at the big whaling museums when I started doing research in the Russian archives. But I knew from actually from the time that I spent in the Arctic back before I went to university, that the kind of introduction of the, the Yankee whaling fleet, the 19th century tall ship Moby Dick-esque whalers that arrive in Beringia in the 1840s was a really critical moment because it was critical all the way over in the Yukon when the whaling ships started trading goods into that, that area. I had sort of in the back of my head that, that whales were important. And it wasn't until I was sitting in an archive in Vladivostok that I realized that all of the changes that the Soviet biologists and planners I was reading about, they really all kind of went back to this whaling moment in the 1840s when commercial whaling ships arrive. And then I realized that I really needed to start the narrative there. It wasn't one that started when it Beringia is divided between the United States and the Soviet Union. It really, in terms of thinking about the ways that modern ideologies have come in and operated within this e ecological space, it was one that started with the arrival of the market in the 1840s. So then I went back and did research at the New Bedford Whaling Museum and other collections that have holdings on whaling books or whaling log books, really to try to get a sense of why were the whalers there, what drove them, and how did they understand killing whales, and how was that different or similar to the ways in which 
Yupik and Inupiat peoples had been killing whales in the Bering Strait for a very long time because there's a, an indigenous tradition of whaling that goes back at least two millennia in the Bering Strait. And kind of in unpacking that, it became very clear that the ways in which market whalers value a dead whale is very distinct and has a very different set of pressures on it than the ways in which a Yupik whaler, for example, might value a dead whale. For the Yupik, it is a, obviously a, a very important connection to staying alive, particularly in the early 19th century when this book picks up, critical to human survival, sort of a basic caloric level. But they're also, you know, whales and whale hunting and living whales are, are tied to this much larger understanding of the ways in which people fit into a cosmology where they're just one among many agented, sentient moral beings that are making choices in the world. And then the commercial whalers arrive and really the, the ways in which they value whales and that the society that they come from values whales is only as commodities. So you don't get paid for looking at a whale. You don't get paid for letting a whale live into the next year. You only get paid for sort of turning that whale into raw products that can be sold when you get back to New Bedford or back to Providence or, or one of the eastern seaboard cities. So it's a really kind of different logic at play. And the introduction of that market logic really transforms the, the ecology of the Bering Strait because it removes 20,000 or so bowheads over the course of, of half a century. A fun fact about bowhead whales uh, is that these animals are the longest living mammal alive, basically, or in existence right now. So they get to live up to 200 years, which is, I thought it was fascinating. Yeah, that was, it makes me wish I could interview one. <laughs> Can you imagine what they've seen? Yeah. And actually, when, when I was in Oktiavik, the museum, they, they show that uh, some of the whales that the natives uh, harvest, they, they found some projectiles from, I don't know when, but um, made out of stone, essentially. So pretty, pretty ancient projectiles that probably some of native nations try to harvest the whale back 200 years ago. And they uh, they missed and that projectile was found later on the whale after it got harvested. So I thought it was fascinating as well. So the the whaling industry collapsed and as a result of different technological advances, there was no need for costly blubber or baleen when you had petroleum products. Can you tell us about how this shift in the commercial focus now into ivory and, and walrus skin? and as well as all other terrestrial species, just like the Arctic fox, what implications that had in terms of ecological cascading effects in this region? Yeah, that's a great question. And it, it got to one of the, I think historians don't get a lot of eureka moments in the course of research, because a lot of it is just sort of churning through lots of archives and recordings and other kinds of documentation. But one of the things I realized as I was doing the, the initial research for this book is that the ways in which European and Americans came to the Bering Strait started in the, the spaces in the Bering Strait that are the most biologically productive. So they started at sea harvesting bowhead whales, which are incredibly fatty, and that's why they were there. And then when they had decimated the, the population of bowhead whales, they move on to walruses and to other kinds of forms of value that they can extract. But it was really kind of a process of extracting energy long before petroleum was a thing that people were coming to the Arctic for. And that fascinated me because it, it's kind of a prehistory of the extractive industries that we now really think about associating with the far north. And the set of ecological ripple effects that come out of that change ecosystem function within the Bering Sea from what 
ecologists, which are people that are not me, are able to reconstruct. But then they also really transform indigenous social life in the 1880s into the early 20th century, because after the commercial whalers have been harvesting bowheads for a number of decades, the number of bowheads and the sort of capacity to kill them goes down. So whalers start turning to the Pacific walrus herds, uh, which are vast and sort of sit on the edge of the, the ice pack in the spring. And they're very accessible from whaling ships. And they're particularly accessible in the, the times of the year when whalers were often not able to hunt bowheads because of where the bowhead migration was. So they could sort of take these days when they'd otherwise just be hanging around and go out on the sea ice and kill hundreds of walrus in an afternoon. And then they would refine those walrus down for their oil, just like they would the whales. And then they'd also harvest their uh, tusks. And this process took the, the Pacific walrus population that was probably over 200,000 animals and drew it down really quickly because of the scale of the, quick, the killing. And as the walruses are becoming sort of less and less available, the indigenous populations who are already facing the difficulty of having fewer bowheads to hunt are at the crux of this sort of dual crisis in the, the main marine mammal food sources. People also eat seals quite a bit, particularly bearded seals, and those are a little bit less impacted by commercial hunting. But it really kind of pro provokes a wave of famines, particularly in northwestern Alaska, as a result of this commercial activity. And one of the ways to replace the calories, the, the energy that's literally being drawn out of the oceans by the, by the market, is to trade fox fur for flour and sugar and other forms of food that are being brought into the Bering Strait by whalers and then eventually by a network of small traders who are interested in feeding the fur market in San Francisco and in other parts of the U.S. So foxes in some ways become a replacement or a way of augmenting a sea mammal harvest that's becoming less and less certain because of the commercial pressures on it. But Arctic foxes are not a great replacement for sea mammals in that their populations tend to be very stochastic. They, they have these big spikes in numbers and then they will crash. Um, and this is a phenomenon that people have observed around the Arctic for a very long time. And it means that if you're basing your economic life on an animal population that goes up and down periodically, you're going to have really lean years, whereas walruses and whales tend to have much less of a population flux. And additionally, the, the prices of fox fur are completely unstable. They have to do with fashion fads that go in and out of style over the course of the, the late 19th and the early 20th centuries. So it meant that Yupik and uh, Inupiat hunters who had been primarily focused on sea mammals that are relatively more stable in terms of the population numbers are pivoting into a relationship with the market and with species that are somewhat less. This puts them in a more precarious situation often in this transitory time at the end of the 19th century. And one, one thing that struck me was that after the depletion of the walrus population in Russia, this ignited a synergy for the conservation between the U.S. and Russia, between U.S. biologists and Russian biologists. You wrote how socialism was falling behind in, in production, and in order to compete with capitalists, they needed to adopt sustainable practices that capitalists had been implementing decades earlier. Yeah, this is one of the, the things I found really surprising when I was doing the research, and kind of comforting in some senses, because it's actually one of the narratives, one of the sections of the book that does not end on a completely bleak note, which is something that environmental historians often get cranky with each other for doing, that you just sort of write these terrible declensionist narratives of everything becoming worse. And the case of the walrus is actually not that case, at least in the 20th century, if you stop paying attention in the 1980s or so. 
And it seems like part of what happens is that the Americans become aware of what market hunting is doing to the walrus populations in the early 20th century and start trying to put in place a series of conservation measures that get amended over the course of the 20th century to allow more or less indigenous hunting and indigenous hunting under different kinds of rules. So it's it's kind of a, a shifting set of policies, but is very much there to address the fact that the American state is very aware that if they just let unrestrained hunting for ivory or for walrus blubber, that they're going to see the possible extermination of the species. So that's in place on the U.S. side by the early 20th century. And then when the Soviet Union comes to power, and particularly in the 1930s, when the the Stalinist drive to maximally extract resources from every possible part of the Soviet Union comes to the fore, the Soviets really pick up a model of hunting that looks very much like the commercial hunting that had happened in the 19th century. So it's, you know, trying to kill as many walruses as possible, you know, sometimes several thousand per year, and just try to kill more and more over time. And of course, this does to the walrus population in the 20th century, the same thing that happened in the 19th. And then after the Second World War, partly because of the death of Stalin and the transformation of the Soviet Union that comes after that, partly because there's more back and forth between Soviet biologists and biologists from other countries following Stalin's death. Uh, the Soviet Union actually puts in place a set of policies that look very much like those in the U.S. So a conservation measures that end up being quite effective for the Pacific walrus. And then eventually in the 70s, they sign kind of a co-management agreement around a couple of Arctic species, one of which is, is walruses. So in both cases, the you know, both the United States and the Soviet Union are sort of able to decide that this particular animal can't be subject to the kind of usual demands of the economy as in exists in its ideal form for these two countries. In your book, you write uh, that Beringia is too cold for corn or wheat or even potatoes. And horses, cows, and pigs are essentially unsustainable in this harsh environment. And domestication of reindeers was initiated in Russia. It was very successful. And then because of their success, they were later introduced into Alaska. Correct me if I'm wrong on this question. How differences in cultural and economic form played a major role in the management of these herds and the sustainability of the native communities? Yeah, the the reindeer were, they were actually the first case that I came to when I was studying this region. And I found them a really fascinating window, particularly into the ways in which the United States and the Soviet Union dealt with the Bering Strait, in large part because, as you said, on the Russian side, reindeer had been domesticated and domesticated for several hundred years prior to the Russian Empire reaching that far east. So they're domesticated by the Chukchi, who probably learned it from other indigenous peoples. It seems like reindeer domestications works its way east across Eurasia. And so Chukchi culture, Chukchi are the, the indigenous people of primarily the interior, but also some populations on the, the coast of the, the Chukchi Peninsula. They had a society that was very much set up around tending domestic reindeer. And this meant that people owned reindeer because you can actually own a domestic animal. And some people owned more reindeer than others. And some people didn't own any reindeer at all and would sort of work for richer reindeer herders for wages, for reindeer hides and access to reindeer does and things like that. So basically, on the Soviet side of the Bering Strait, you have a system of private property ownership with some differentiation between people who own a lot and people who don't own very much at all. On the American side of the Bering Strait, the same species, which in North America we call caribou, 
have never been had never been domesticated. Um, so there wasn't a local domestic population, even though they're the same species. Inupiat hunters had, you know, just not seen a need to kind of take the that particular set of steps that had happened in Eurasia. Um, and there's also some evidence that the Chukchi understood that their reindeer were made them very powerful and wouldn't trade them to other peoples, that they were kind of a guarded technology in some ways within Chukchi society. So there's a lot of trade back and forth across the Bering Strait, but live reindeer were not part of it. And so this means that in North America, Inupiat caribou hunters who are living on the interior of Alaska in particular are generally speaking not owning large amounts of private property, and they're certainly not owning caribou herds. They were collectively hunting caribou during their migrations through the interior and up toward the coasts. So on the American side, you have somewhat collective hunters who don't have a lot of private property, which means that there's kind of this amazing inversion if you're a historian and you're just looking at this as a case study between the Soviets coming in and finding the Chukchi with their private property and their differentiation between the rich and the poor that to the Soviets looks like a class system. And on the American side, where the the ideology very much emphasizes owning private property, you have Inupiat caribou hunters who do not own animals as private property. So the two states basically need to switch places. They need to put projects into place that completely upend the way in which people relate with this particular species in this space. And for the Americans, this starts in the 1890s when they start importing reindeer from Chukotka that have been domesticated. They manage to convince a couple of Chukchi herders to actually sell their reindeer, which very much goes against the principles of how reindeer were cared for. And they bring them over to the the Seward Peninsula and try to have Anupiat come in and start working with the reindeer. And the goal is very much to create Jeffersonian yeoman reindeer farmers in a place that isn't going to be useful for the kind of agriculture that has defined American settler colonialism in the, the continental United States. And this has a really mixed uptake in Alaska, partly because the U.S. government really can't decide how it is that they want people to own reindeer. There's a lot of back and forth in the policy and lots of confusion, and it makes reindeer hurting for many Inupiat not look all that much more dependable than any other way of making a living in the Arctic. It's not a a guaranteed thing. It doesn't fix a major problem. Some people do become reindeer herders and still are, and, and very much have kind of incorporated that into the ways of participating in the economy and having goods for your family and things like that. And some people just choose to kind of ignore the reindeer experiment in Alaska. And then after the 1920s, when the Soviet Union has control of the the Russian side of the the Bering Strait, they come in to try to collectivize the the private property reindeer herds that the Chukchi own. And they leave much less space for people to participate or not participate, depending on what they want to do. Really, you have to collectivize or you'll be forced to collectivize. And this, this produces, I think, probably some of the most violent instances in this book, which is the relationship between the Chukchi, particularly in the interior of the the Chukchi Peninsula and the Soviet state, which devolve into violence in the 1930s and remain pretty violent up until the end of the 1940s. And really what was at stake was the Chukchi desire to maintain the relationship with reindeer that they had cultivated over, you know, half a millennia and the Soviets coming in and saying, no, no, you know, no private property, you need to collectivize. This is the way of the future. And, and the, the, the politics around these animals becomes really stark. But by the 1970s, 
the most of the reindeer in Chukotka have been collectivized. People are working on these collective farms called Kalhoz. And, you know, now in Chukotka, there's actually some nostalgia for that period of time because the Soviet state, very much unlike the American state, actually did make collective reindeer farming into a very dependable, very meaning-filled form of employment that the Soviet Union would always pay your wages, um, no matter what the value of a reindeer was to the Soviet Union in raw terms, they were always going to make sure that you were paid, that there was fuel for your tractors, that there was, you know, the electric lights were on in your village, and those sort of things were taken care of. So there's kind of a revolutionary consistency to the system that the Soviet Union put in place around reindeer herding, with an enormous amount of subsidization of the industry, which of course just collapses after after the collapse of the Soviet Union. There was the collapse of the Soviet Union, which stopped the support of the herding communities in the Russian side. And and also reindeer in Alaska collapsed as a result of caribou and wolves moving on and, and into the, the areas of these herds in, in late 1900s. The changes in, in reindeer populations are not completely controlled by people. Mm. And in fact, both the U.S. and the Soviet Union really try to make a tundra environment that is optimized for reindeer and for the maximum number of reindeer. And particularly for the Soviets, this was really important to keep seeing the herds growing over time. And in both the U.S. and the Soviet Union, this leads to campaigns of wolf eradication and attempts to control either wild caribou populations in Alaska or wild reindeer populations in Chukotka, because while the reindeer that the Chukchi had and that are imported to Alaska are domestic, they go feral very easily. And if you think of domestication as being kind of a continuum rather than as a black and white state, or the, the reindeer are close enough to being wild that they can go back to that state pretty easily. So both Chukchi reindeer herders and Inupiaq reindeer herders talk about, you know, herds of wild animals coming in and just sort of drawing off their domestic animals because, you know, they're herd animals. They like to they like to be together or they will follow the same pattern of breezes because it's leading to places where there are fewer mosquitoes and things like that. So the natural environment sometimes pushes the wild and the domestic herds together and then they commingle and they're really difficult to sort apart. So as the, the, the wild populations go up, there's this problem of absorption of the domestic populations. But another issue that, that happens in populations of reindeer all over the Arctic is that they have a, a cyclical boom and bust. It happens on much longer timescales than with the Arctic fox, which is a couple of years. In the case of reindeer, they tend to peak every 50 to 100 years, and then we'll have a period where the population drops off, and sometimes pretty dramatically. This cycle seems like it's been interrupted somewhat in the last couple of decades because everything is getting warmer more consistently, and that tends to be the reason that caribou herds are in decline is because of slight warming. They're Ice Age animals that don't particularly like warmer weather. But in the 20th century, you can also see some of those impacts starting to happen despite the best attempts of the Soviet Union and the United States to protect domestic reindeer herds from any non-human elements that might impact their population size, the wolves and the wild caribou, and then the, the climate itself come in and have the final say. Yeah, that's, that's super interesting. In your book, uh, you also talked about the, the mining in this region, particularly gold. You write that the town of Nome, I'm, I'm quoting, the town of Nome was only the latest American frontier to substantiate the freedoms of ownership through death and theft. 
the future of mining in Alaska is at mercy of lawyers, doctors, and judges. Can you expand on that? Yeah. So one of the things that I think makes the, the case of this part of Alaska and also of, of Russia interesting is that they're connected to empires that have substantiated their political presence by settling large numbers of, of people, either Russians or white Americans on land that had been the, the possession of indigenous populations. And that's very much the kind of settler colonial history that you see in the lower 48, as you call it in Alaska, the continental United States, is that you move in populations of white settlers who will farm land or take land under different regimes of ownership and extraction than had been there prior when it was when it was owned by indigenous populations. And Alaska is somewhat different, or this part of Alaska is different, because it's a place that from very early on after the Alaska Purchase, there's a lot of concern on the part of the U.S. government that it is a piece of American land that's never really going to be very attractive to settlers. There's not a lot of reason for people who are motivated by making a plot of land into something agriculturally productive to go to the Seward Peninsula because you can't grow corn. There's never going to be amber waves of grain up there. Well, maybe there will be, but that's a different conversation. But in the 19th century, there was a lot of worry about this. And then there's the discovery of gold, which actually looked like the sort of thing that would make people come in, claim the land as private property, and start to extract value for it that was good for the nation in some sense. And the process of doing that means that you basically have to ignore or actively dispossess the indigenous owners of the, the land who had been there before. And indigenous Alaskans were in a very gray space in terms of their legal status. The United States did not sign treaties with indigenous Alaskans kind of very much on purpose. And so there wasn't there wasn't a really good sense of what kinds of claims the Inupiat had to the Seward Peninsula. So they're basically ignored as this tide of, of miners comes in to try to find gold strikes on the Seward Peninsula. And what I found in the archive is that there's actually two different archives of what the gold rush was on the Seward Peninsula. There's, or maybe there's three. There's the, the one that exists in the, the diaries of miners and the, the accounts of the U.S. government that's very worried about this influx of, you know, 20,000 people showing up on the Seward Peninsula around the town of Nome, you know, over the course of one summer in the late 19th century, when there's no infrastructure, there's nowhere to feed people, they're not prepared for winter, you know, there, there's lots of kind of bureaucratic worry about this. And then the miners themselves are, of course, worried about whether or not they're going to actually find any gold, and most of them don't, and so there's lots of disappointment. And so that's one archive, and I found lots of sources that were really interesting and kind of worked through the ways in which miners understood what they were doing there and you know why they were on the Seward Peninsula and what made the work hard. That was really fascinating. And that becomes turned into sort of a legend of the, the, the gold rush, right? It gets conflated with the Klondike gold rush that happens just a couple of years before it at the confluence of the Klondike and Yukon rivers in the same region by Alaska regions, which is to say it's a thousand miles away. And, you know, it gets conflated with kind of the Jack London romance of the frontier. And you get now all of these popular television shows about, you know, people reenacting the frontier by mining for gold outside Nome and recreating the gold rush on a very small scale. So that's kind of its own other archive is this romantic image of this final frontier space in Alaska. 
And then the third archive is the Inupiat oral history. um, And now much of that oral history has been recorded and written down in an effort to put it alongside the, the settler history of what the Seward Peninsula was like, period. And I found the the Inupiat understanding of the gold rush to be particularly careful in emphasizing that the Inupiat knew there was gold in their rivers long before the the kind of quote unquote discovery um, in 1898. It was just that gold didn't have any obvious value. And if you think about it, you have to actually do a lot of cultural work to make gold into a metal that anybody cares about because you can't make tools out of it. It's very soft. It's really heavy. You, you can live a very rich and full life without ever touching this element because you don't need it for your, your body to work. So it, it sort of didn't have any reason to be valuable in the rich cosmology that the Nupiat had in their world, even though they knew it was there. And so the drawing back and uh, re-articulating the narrative of discovery and saying, no, you know, we very much knew what was on our land. And what happened with the gold rush was the dispossession of us from the land that was ours, and also the erasure of us as Inupiat people from the story of gold itself. You know, the, if you go buy a book about the Nome Gold Rush, most places it's it's going to talk about, you know, these, these men called the three lucky Swedes who go up and discover the gold. And it's not going to discuss the fact that they were almost certainly reliant on indigenous knowledge of the region to make that, that gold find. And so, I tried to kind of braid those stories together as a way of articulating that this process of dispossessing indigenous peoples of their land, and by doing so, covering up their experience of what that land meant and the, the value that it had is still getting played out on this, this piece in Alaska into the 20th century. So the, the segregation from foreigners narratives of the Inupiat history uh, in, in Nome, so the, the segregation from foreigners' narratives of the Inupiat history uh, in, in Nome, uh, was this a case for, for other parts of the Beringia and for other instances as well? One of the things about writing about Beringia is that it's a, it's a very large geographical space that doesn't have an enormous number of people living in it at any one time because it's just not population dense. I'm not trying to write about Manhattan where the just sort of sheer ton of stories and recordings and documents would be unbelievable. This is a place where you can actually try to track down most of the things that have been said about the place. And at least that's true for, you know, if you go to the Russian archives, there's ways of sorting through it to look for Chukotka because it doesn't come up all that often. And there are ways in Alaska to, to kind of piece together the Seward Peninsula and Northwestern region. But I also found that a lot of the really compelling on-the-ground details emerged not through the big state archives, but through projects that indigenous communities and some anthropologists have been doing, some of them now for a very long time, to record oral histories of, you know, all aspects of life in this in this part of the world. And I was really reliant on those documents in creating this narrative because they filled in pretty big holes in, in what is in kind of your average Soviet bureaucratic archive or the, the national archives in the U.S., which wasn't really asking people questions about how they felt about the gold rush, right? They, they were really worried about starving miners, and they were worried about the fact that there was lots of litigation over who had mining claims. And they were sort of distantly worried about indigenous starvation, but they weren't going out and asking those questions. Whereas in the, the oral history projects that are run 
a lot of them are housed at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. Some of them have been done by kind of local indigenous communities themselves to collect, publish these stories. They just articulate a different, very much more granular, much more immersed understanding of what these changes looked like. And fortunately, some of those also existed on the Russian side of the Bering Strait, which really allowed me to fill out some of the, particularly the interactions between the Chukchi and the Soviet Union. So your book is based in on three main sources from scientific materials, store re- records, and as we have been talking about, uh, and native oral histories. You, you include interviews by Paul Tulana from Ukiavik and Harry Brower from Ukiavik in, in Alaska, and also Yuri Rit- Ritkeu. Ritkeu, yeah. <laughs> and... And how, tell me more, and how important are oral histories for the, for these nations and cultures? Well, I mean, for one thing, I'm not the right person to answer that because I'm not from, I'm not Chukchi or Anupiak or (laughs) Yupik. But for me, they were really critical as a way of articulating multiple perspectives on on the events that were happening. And particularly not to just sort of fall into kind of the archival rut of re-articulating the worldview of the people who end up leaving the bulk of the records, which I think is a, it's a really easy thing to do because they leave so many records. In the case of the Soviet Union, there's just an unbelievable amount of paper um, and the U.S. is really close behind. And so I I think it's easy to have your perspective kind of move to, to just thinking with those documents and that the oral histories that have very consciously been put forward by many communities um, and sometimes by individuals who have written autobiographies are really meant to be correctives or additional perspectives on these historical events. And they're also assertions of intellectual traditions for paying attention to history that wasn't necessarily written down. There's a tendency, and I've had this come up in sort of job interview situations where people say, well, you know, if it's an oral history, you can't really know if it was accurate, right? Like that that's not really a source. Um, there still is some lingering bias there. I think I've found very little of that amongst people who are trained as North American historians, because I think if you work on indigenous history, if you work on histories of slavery, if you work on histories, labor histories that deal with peoples who weren't literate, historians have been thinking about this problem for a really long time in U.S. history. And then there's, there's some historians who have the luxury of working you know, in kind of corners of the past where they're, they're mostly working with literate peoples um, or have chosen to not pay attention to the peoples who aren't literate. But I did not, partly because Beringia experiences European colonialism relatively recently, so we're talking about things that happened in the last 150 years, and partly I think because I spent these really formative years living in an indigenous community in the Yukon and saw how, how much careful, detailed grasp people had about their pasts, their families' histories, the histories of their community and how it came to be, that I did not arrive at the oral histories suspicious of their contents for being less accurate. I think I arrived at them like you arrive at any source, understanding that they're not the whole truth and nothing but the truth, because no source does that for you. You need to triangulate them and make sure that you're not leaning on the one outlier piece of evidence, even if that's really tempting because it's a juicy piece of evidence, you know, you, you want to see some kind of consistency to the narrative that, that you're piecing together. But to me, that's, 
that's just the practice you take with any kind of source, whether or not it was written by a Soviet bureaucrat or an American missionary, or it's it's a, an oral history that a community has decided to share with the public by publishing it. Yeah, it seems to me that in recent years, the literate culture really has started to accept and embrace this type of records, despite being previously dismissed by their accuracy. How how, how do you feel about that? Do you think it, it it's progressing? Because for us that we work in the Arctic, it's, it, we know that the value of this of these records and, and about oral histories. And do you see any, any advancement on, on the acceptance of this, of this type of records? I mean, I hope so. Cause I use them a lot in this book. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I, but in general, yes, I think so. And I think a lot of that actually has to do with work that's being done by indigenous scholars in native American and indigenous studies who have been, you know, very much making space in the Academy for, forms of knowledge transfer and indigenous kind of intellectual traditions and saying explicitly, you know, this, this needs to be part of the, the academic space and needs to be taken seriously. So in, in many ways, if, if there is more acceptance, it's because these scholars have been doing that work now for, you know, 20 or 30 years. And I found, and, and you might have seen this also in the Arctic, that for people who have spent time in, in the Arctic in general, that it's, sort of straightforwardly accepted that you pay attention to these things because they're accurate. They help you navigate the world you're in. They help you understand the communities that you might be living in. And it also seems to me that there's been a lot more collaborative knowledge generation between natural scientists and indigenous peoples around things like whale behavior, sea ice, and the ways in which sea ice is changing um, and that that obviously involves a real recognition on the part of both groups that the knowledge that the other person is bringing to the table is valuable. And there's there's work that needs to be done in kind of translating it between their idioms and their worldviews. But they can actually be mutually reinforcing instead of one of them needing to kind of win out in the end. And I, I think I find that really encouraging where it works well. One of the greatest achievements using... Uh, native oral histories was the the discovery of Franklin's lost expedition ships in, in northern Canada and the Arctic uh, in the Canadian archipelago, and uh, these ships have been lost for for over a hundred years, and they were finally finally uh, found as a result of this of this of this knowledge. So I think I thought it was quite relevant. So there were two areas that I would really like to discuss further with you. And that we're not, you don't really talk much about them in, in your book. And and one of them is the gas and oil industry and the, the Chukchi Sea and the vulnerability of Eskimo communities to climate change in the Arctic. What's your opinion on, on how this industry has impacted these this communities in the Chukchi Sea? Yeah, I think, I mean, are you talking about the, um, like the 2015 shell drilling in the Chukchi Sea itself? Uh, yeah, and um, I believe uh, there's some uh, oil rigs in, I think, Point Hope. You know, a week ago I was in Prudhoe Bay, actually. And Right. Yeah, you were where it really is happening. <laughs> yeah, I think the, the kind of specter of offshore drilling in Alaskan coastal waters, which is kind of in an ambiguous legal position at the moment um, because of the Trump administration, my sense is that it's a very, it's a complicated issue in Inupiat communities, because many of these communities 
uh, do not have great income streams or kind of local forms of employment. I think I talk in the kind of conclusion of my book that many of these are places that have been sort of left behind other obsessions that the, the market has moved on to. Um, and that that's sort of one of the things that capitalism does is that it moves into a place and creates a boom for something like Fox. And then, you know, people stop wearing Fox skins and they just kind of leave communities behind. And that, you know, oil and gas development in kind of these offshore regions offers some possibility of bringing employment back, of sort of having another energy boom like there was with whaling, and more or less with the same set of pluses and minuses that it has the potential for enormous ecological impacts, particularly if there are oil spills, obviously contributing, you know, whatever petroleum products you pull out of the ground and burn is contributing to the general warming in the Arctic. So there's there's knock-on effects, even if there aren't oil spills, and that communities have to take those very seriously and think about what it would mean to have an oil spill in a region with sea ice and how that would be managed and if it could be managed at all. And at the same time, thinking about having local forms of employment that allow people to stay in the communities where they want to live, really appealing. And so it's, it's a complicated issue and one that to me seemed to be on sort of an accelerated boom and bust cycle in the case of the Chukchi Sea oil development and that Shell put an enormous amount of money into developing a series of offshore test wells in the Chukchi Sea. And because of kind of regulations put in place under the Obama administration, this came with a lot of disaster preparedness training and employment in communities all up and down the the US side of the of the coast. And then Shell didn't find enough oil to stay in the Chukchi Sea and pulled out in 2015, just left their their infrastructure without people who needed to take care of it or be employed for it. I, I mean, I remember one, I think it's in Point Hope, one local leader is interviewed by the New York Times and basically says, you know, this this oil bust, we've dealt with it before. And what he was referring to was whaling. So that there's kind of a sense of like, this. this looks really familiar. It's just you know, when is it going to happen and how is it going to happen and what can we do as communities to shelter ourselves from from the potential mm-hmm. real downsides and actually take some of the benefits. And mm-hmm. I think those are really contentious questions and they look different in different communities. Yeah. So for, for this region that is now living the a climate crisis, essentially, you know, changes in the infrastructure as a result of permafrost thaw, coastal erosion, communities are being flushed away into the ocean, essentially, and sea level rise, as well as thinner sea ice and longer ice-free season, which affects the subsistence lifestyle and hunting of these communities. You know, we, we, we transition between some of the, um, the manageable environmental disasters, per se, from the whaling and uh, walrus depletions, and, and, and now we, we're facing the climate crisis how do you foresee these communities on adapting and what kind of differences you, you think there, there will be for, for both sides of the Bering Strait? To me, the climate question in the Bering Strait is both a continuation and an acceleration of the, the kind of historical events that I talk about, or maybe an intensification of the 150 years or 200 years that come before that. I think a lot actually about what the 1880s looked like, particularly in northwestern Alaska, which is this moment when, because of commercial walrus and whale hunting, there is a, a calorie crisis amongst many coastal communities. 
Yupik and Inupiat communities along the coast. And this is coupled with uh, a moment when caribou herds are in decline for what seems like probably sort of natural climactic reasons. But it's also just a moment when the Bering Strait seems to have particularly terrible years for basically every kind of thing that humans depend on. So it's the caribou, the walrus and the whales are absent because of commercial hunting. There aren't enough Arctic hare. There don't seem to be as many birds migrating into the region. It's just this sort of all out um, confluence of events that makes life extraordinarily difficult for communities all across the region. And what people do in response to this is what people have done in the Arctic for a very, very long time when the going gets tough is that you try to move to somewhere where it's better. And that part of what made the 1880s awful and made the 1880s a time when so many people died is that it was bad everywhere. And that obviously people survived this and they found, you know, kind of new ways of making lives, recombining their their nations, of moving to places where they had access to other sorts of resources. But to me, there's a, a similar feeling about climate change, and not honestly just in Beringia, but more generally, that it's the issue isn't that the climate is changing, it's the, the issue is that it is changing all of these other things, so that maybe there aren't as many Arctic hares, and maybe there aren't as many caribou, and there maybe there aren't as many walrus, all of that simultaneously, rather than it being kind of spread out, or a set of crises that people can deal with by shifting their life ways or shifting themselves in space in order to to avoid. And I think about that in part because, you know, what emerges out of the 1880s in northwestern Alaska is sort of a, a crisis of refugees, of people moving between communities or from communities where there has been just a complete collapse of the capacity to to make a living into communities where they hope that hasn't happened yet. And that, you know, that is very much a thing that I feel like we're going to see in the next couple of decades happen on a much broader scale. And that there's kind of a claustrophobia on the planet when you think about there not being a place to move to where you can guarantee that these impacts are not happening. And to me, that's the thing in Beringia that you can start to see already, which is that communities like Shishmaref or Kivalina that are actively eroding into the Bering Sea um, or the Chukchi Sea because the protective sea ice that sort of kept their coastlines from eroding quite so quickly is gone. But then you also have, you know, the interior of Alaska, which is having such an enormous spike in wildfires because it's hotter and it's drier and also because there's a lot more lightning strikes because the, the climate is more volatile. And you have fish runs that are becoming increasingly unpredictable because the water is too warm for salmon to migrate in. And so it, it has that feel to me that, you know, people in Beringia, some of them have seen it before or their ancestors have seen it before, but that's not necessarily comforting that it's kind of a sign of the, the ways in which we're kind of accelerating and intensifying and globalizing a set of crises that, that people have managed to live through in the past, but they're not good times. Yeah. And do you foresee yourself continuing your research path in, in this topic for this region, for the Beringia? So I'm, I'm just, just barely starting. I'm like five weeks into working on my second book, which is going to look at the Yukon River watershed. Um, and part of what interests me there is that it's a place that has, I mean, it's, it's a huge space again. So I guess that is my tick is that I go to these, these places that are very large in terms of geography, but perhaps not so much in terms of population. And it's one that has a series of, of very distinct indigenous ways of imagining relationships to land and to water and to other species. And then over the course of the um, 18th and 19th and 20th centuries, it becomes divided between 
first the Russian and the British empires, which are kind of trying to impose themselves on top of these indigenous nations. And then after the sale of Alaska between the United States um, and Canada. Um, so you've got this sort of indigenous history, imperial history, and then nation state history that are all uh, kind of on the same watershed. And I'm particularly interested in the ways in which all of these kind of various societies imagine rights for beings that aren't human or spaces um, or water or some of these things that are really kind of critical to the watershed functioning, partly because there's been a lot of attention to people assigning rights to watersheds or to, to like Lake Erie was recently kind of given rights so that people can sue on its behalf. And I'm just sort of curious as to what that model means and where it comes from and, and how it looks when people actually try to impose it on a landscape in sort of partial ways as has happened along the Yukon. So in that sense, it looks much like this project in that it's big and it looks at these kind of comparative political and economic structures. It's different in that it's much more terrestrial. And it also, part of my attraction to it is that it lets me go back. The community that I first lived in, um, in the Arctic, is on the headwaters of one of the tributaries of the, of the Yukon. So part of it is a little bit of a homecoming. Christian, thank you so much for this conversation. It was a real pleasure. Oh, no, thank you. It was, it was my pleasure. That was Christian Andresen and Bathsheba DeMuth in conversation. Bathsheba DeMuth is an environmental historian at Brown University, where she specializes in the lands and seas of the Russian and North American Arctic. She's published widely, including in the American Historical Review and The New Yorker. Her first book, Floating Coast, An Environmental History of the Bering Strait, is just out with Norton. Find out more at her website, brdemuth.com. Christian Andresen is an assistant professor in the University of Wisconsin-Madison Geography Department. He's an environmental scientist focusing on Arctic terrestrial systems and spends his summers conducting fieldwork across northern and western Alaska. Find out more at his website, christiangandresen.com. You've been listening to Edge Effects, a production of CHE, the Center for Culture, History, and Environment in the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by me, Laura Perry, and Jerome Darnell. The music you're hearing is by Julian Lynch. You can get all of our episodes sent straight to your computer or mobile device by subscribing to Edge Effects wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review or tell a friend about it. That really helps connect us with new listeners. You can follow us on Twitter at EdgeFXMag. And as always, keep up with the steady flow of great content about cultural and environmental change across the full sweep of human history at edgefx.net.